Hey, Church of the City, Brian Loritz here. Uh, what an honor and joy it is to be able to be a part of this series where we're just walking through some surprising statements that Jesus made. Before we get to that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, I just want to take some time to just let you know how much I love and appreciate your pastor. In fact, he is pastoring me personally from afar. I grew up listening to great preachers. Uh, I'm a son of a great preacher, which means I can be real cynical when it comes to preachers. Uh, there's only about two or three that I listen to regularly, and your pastor, Pastor John Tyson, uh, is one of them. John is just um, so unique in that he's an incredible combination of sensitivity to the Spirit um, being able to exegete a text, exegete the culture. And then as he's preaching, you, you just get this sense of what the Greeks called ethos, uh, that, that John is really living this thing. And it's, it's, it's pouring not just from his mind or his mouth, it's pouring from his heart. So John, I want you to know, man, um, I, I so admire and, and respect you, brother. And it's just a joy to call you friend. And I, I want you, you know, as, as I've heard John talk about creating a culture of honor, I hope you're doing everything that you can to not idolize John, but to really honor him and his wife, Christy. Uh, I'm on the phone all the time with pastors and leaders uh, all over the country who 2020, like it is for all of us, has just been a beat down. But I think especially for those of us who are in spiritual leadership. So whatever you can to just slip a note, uh, send them a text message, um, you know, give them a gift card to some kind of a coffee shop, Chick-fil-A even, that's John's spot. Just, just bless him because he's been a blessing to so many of us around the world. All right, Matthew chapter 5, pick me up in verse 38. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Why? For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I, I want to talk for a few moments as we're in this series of surprising things that Jesus has said from the subject, no quid pro quo. No quid pro quo. Father, I bless your people, and I, I thank you again for the great work that you're doing in that section of your vineyard, Lord Jesus, right there in the heart of Manhattan. Uh, God, I thank you for um, all the lives that have been changed and transformed. I, I thank you, Lord God, for, for seeing us through uh, a very difficult stretch and season, Father God. I'm reminded of what your word says in Psalm 91, that, that your faithfulness is a shield and buckler for us. 
God, I thank you that, that you've been faithful to us in that regard. Now, Lord God, I, I do pray that you give me grace to encourage your people uh, with a very, very challenging word from Jesus Christ. God, you've, you've nailed my heart personally. And, uh, and I pray, Lord God, that you would visit all of our hearts, uh, Father, no matter, no matter where we may be on the spiritual spectrum. God, do it, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen. Several years ago, right kind of during the heart uh, of, um, of President Trump's uh, leadership over, over our nation, there was a little phrase that, that just kept coming up, and it came up so often we, we eventually got sick of it. Uh, it's the phrase quid pro quo. Um, to simplify, the idea of quid, quid pro quo was really the idea of tit for tat. You, you do something nice for me, I, I, I do something nice for you. And in fact, this phrase quid pro quo, it was actually used in very unflattering ways uh, that, that led to an outcry because our president had been accused of, of doing quid pro quo with, with another foreign nation. Now, I, I know it's really easy to, to rail on President Trump and to say, how dare you go the route of quid pro quo with, with one of the, the, the foreign nations out there. But here's what I want you to understand. Uh, endemic to every heart, your heart, my heart, is kind of this relational paradigm of, of quid pro quo. It was C.S. Lewis who said, look, all friendships start on the note of you too. Like there's an affinity. We enter into relationships with individuals and man, there's this common ground that we feel. And before we know it, we're, we're going the route of quid pro quo. And it makes sense a lot of times, man. I, I find myself in trouble and you, you come and you're, you're bailing me out. And when, when you're in trouble, I come and, and I bail you out. When I'm grieved and overwhelmed by life and just being beaten down, you, you're coming and blessing me, watching the kids or bringing meals or, you know, whatever that may be. And, and when you have found yourself grieving or beaten down by, by life, I, I go the quid pro quo route. I, I return the favor. Man, when, when, when people are coming against a friend of mine and, 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 and they're attacking him and slandering him, man, I, I've got his back. And, and, and when people do that to me, I expect you to have my back as well. That's, that's kind of the quid pro quo paradigm of human relationships. And yet the problem is when we're in relationships with individuals, um, we're, not, we're not entering to a relationship with someone who is perfect. We're, we're entering to a relationship with, with a sinner. And there's bound to be moments where, you know, in a marriage context, in a friendship context, maybe even in a working context, where all of a sudden I've been doing something nice for you and not only is that not reciprocated, but to take it a step further, you kind of return my kindness with a sense of betrayal. And it's at that moment where I see the fallenness of humanity and it, and it wins and it wounds me. What, what do we do to people who, who treat us in a lot of ways like enemies? Jesus gets to this in our text. I, I want us to be really clear. And if you, if you get nothing else I say in, in our time of just study around God's word, I, I need you to get this or else you'll, you'll miss all of this. I really believe that at its core, our text is not ultimately Jesus giving sage advice about how to treat people who are being mean to you. Uh, for sure, there's principles here. But I think when we look at Matthew 5, 38, to 48 over the broader meta-narrative of scripture. 
In other words, when we see it through a gospel lens, we'll understand that this passage is far more than just sage advice on how to deal with people who've been unkind and are acting as enemies towards you. It's actually calling us towards reconciliation. See, the narrative of the gospel pretty much means this, that that at one time, you and I, scriptures genuinely say, were enemies with God. It's not that, that we were just kind of doing our own thing and, you know, God was okay with that. No, no, no. God was upset with us. Ephesians chapter 2 said that, that we were by nature objects of God's wrath. That, that us going our own way, doing our own thing, living life how we want to live it, it put us at odds with God. We were, we were acting as enemies towards God. Our sin was stabbing him in his back. Our sin was betraying him. Our sin was making him angry. And what does God do? Not only does God treat us kindly by sending his only son, not only does Jesus treat us kindly by giving his only life, but he does it for the sole purpose of not just showing acts of kindness to unkind people, but he does it that we would be reconciled to him, that we would be transformed from former enemies to now friends and sons and daughters in the family of God. The gospel is all about turning enemies into friends. It's all about reconciliation. I'll never forget a couple months ago, um, I was preaching for a mutual friend that John and I have uh, named John Mark Comer. Uh, he had invited me to do kind of this symposium on race that they were doing. And, and for me, one of the most powerful moments of the time was I got to sit on a panel with a very distinguished uh, African-American older gentleman in his 80s now who had actually marched with Dr. King in the civil rights movement. And I'll never forget what this older gentleman said. He said, uh, people don't really understand King. See, King, he said, wasn't just about changing laws. That's not ultimately what the civil rights movement was about. It was really about reconciliation. John Lewis would say it this way. He, he, this famous civil rights icon who just died last year, John Lewis said, we were out to redeem the soul of America. Martin Luther King Jr. would say it this way, uh, King, in the middle of the Montgomery bus boycotts, he, he said and he announced to his white brothers and sisters who were being very cruel and unkind, he said to them, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. Do to us what you will and we will still love you. We will meet your physical force with soul force. You may bomb our homes and spit on our children and we will still love you. Wow, that doesn't sound like a person who's just into changing laws. King would say, no, man, we, we wanted more than that. We, we wanted reconciliation with these individuals who were acting as our enemies. Let me ask you a question. Who, who do you need to say these words to, what King said? Who, who in your life do you need to say and capture the spirit of these words and the spirit of what Jesus is saying in our text. Maybe for some of you, man, your, your work environment is just really hard right now. Um, you're dealing with bosses and, and coworkers, and they've just been really making life miserable for you. And there's been some shady, underhanded stuff there. And, and they've been extremely unkind. While you, not perfect, you've been showing up and doing what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe, maybe you're, you're married, or maybe you used to be married, and no, you weren't the perfect spouse, but, 
but you found out about that adultery, that adulterous relationship that your now ex-spouse was in, and it just winded and wounded you. And not only that, but they're not, they're not carrying their weight as it relates to providing for the kids. And every time you've got to reach out to them now, it feels like you're being a bill collector. And, and you've gone from friends to enemies. Maybe for someone else, it's a, it's a friendship that's just turned hostile. I mean, this individual just knifed you in your back, betrayed you. The gossip, the slander has wounded you deeply. And maybe what King is saying, and, and more importantly, what Jesus is saying, is not maybe something you want to hear, but it's something that you need to hear. If I understand what Jesus is saying right, is that the, the power of the gospel is, is nowhere more clearly seen than how we handle people that if we were on fire and they had a glass of water, they drink it slowly. How do you navigate your enemies says a lot about what you and I really think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, let me just say it this way. I believe what Jesus is saying to us in this text is, if we're going to win our enemies, we need to lose our rights. If we're going to win our enemies, we're going to lose our rights. Uh, I didn't hear any amens on that one. Um, so let me press into this. If you're, if you're new to, um, to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, maybe uh, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian even, uh, I want to recommend that, that you read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really the blinkest version of the Christian life. It's, it's a condensed version that's highly concentrated with gospel nutrients of what kingdom living looks like. And, and here in our text, Jesus is, is talking about an individual who, who he really describes as being evil. And it's interesting how he just kind of breaks this, this individual down. This, this individual is violent. They're, they're into slapping. This, this individual is um, litigious. They're, they're going to sue you for everything you've got. This, this individual just has no scruples. This is an individual whom God has allowed through his permissive will to be in your life. And Jesus surprisingly says you have an incredible opportunity to look like your father and to demonstrate the power of kingdom living before a fallen world. Well, what does this look like? Jesus begins by painting a picture. He, he says, look, if, you're, if your enemy slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. Now, let me stop you right there. In Jesus's day, like our day, most individuals were right-handed. So just get the picture. A right-handed individual slaps you on the right cheek, which means they're not slapping you this way. They're slapping you in a backhanded way. Now, to be slapped is awful enough, but to be backhanded? Boy, that's being insulted to a whole nother level. And what does Jesus say? Hey, man, if you get backhanded, turn the other cheek. From there he goes, if your enemy sues you and takes your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Um, most individuals had multiple tunics. They were kind of the undergarment that you wore. You, you had multiple ones of those. But the average individual only had one cloak. And that cloak would double not just as a garment, but you would also use it as a blanket at night. The, the cloak was seen as something that was so vital and so important that, that there were actually laws that stated... That was that individual's right. You cannot sue and take a person's cloak. But what does Jesus say? If a person sues you, takes your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. 
Then he goes on to say, if anyone would force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, Jesus is talking in a region called Palestine, and Palestine is, is just running over with. It's occupied by Roman soldiers. According to Roman law, at any given moment, a Roman soldier could take his knife, tap you on the shoulder, and you were obligated by law to carry his pack for a mile. What does Jesus say? At the end of that mile, don't go, hey, fulfilled my obligations. He says, no. Go with him an extra mile. Finally, Jesus says, and give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Yeah, I know you had plans with that money and I know you worked hard for that money. But man, if you see someone in need, I want you to part with that money. Now, what does all this mean? The common denominator to all these analogies, it's the idea of losing my rights. I'm backhanded? I have the right to defend myself, but Jesus says, I want you to lose that right and actually make yourself more vulnerable. I've got the right by law to hold onto my cloak. Jesus says, no, if he's suing you, lose your rights and give him the cloak. Look, at the end of a mile, fulfilled my right. He's forced me to go one mile. I'm being a, 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 you know, I'm just kind of fulfilling what the law says. Jesus says, no, 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 I want you to lose your rights and, and go an extra mile. And, and hey, I understand that's, that's money you've worked hard for, but lose your rights to it. Give generously to people who are begging and seeking to borrow from you. Over and over and over again, Jesus says kingdom living and kingdom people don't hold on to rights. We're constantly looking for a way to lose our rights. D.A. Carson says it this way. What Jesus is saying in these verses, more than anything else, is that his followers have no rights. They don't have the right to retaliate and wreak their vengeance. They don't have the right to their possessions, no, not to their time and money. Even their legal rights may sometimes be abandoned. Personal self-sacrifice, Carson says, displaces personal retaliation. For this is the way the Savior himself went, the way of the cross. And the way of the cross not notions of right and wrong, is the Christian's principle of conduct. Come on now. I see you in your home in your pajamas looking at your device in this sermon and you kind of giving me the side eye. You're like, come on, Brian, just come on. And, and let me tell you why none of us are shouting hallelujah or running around the house praising God right now. It's because you and I live in America and the narrative of America how America is shaping and forming us is this country is the land of individual rights. Our, our nation was founded because we believe that we've got the, the right to be able to worship how we want and the separation of church and state and religious liberty and freedom. In the Constitution, it talks about our inalienable rights. The American Revolution happens because we've got the right to freedom. Many historians describe the Civil War as, as the war of states' rights. There's African-American rights. There's, there's women's rights. There's LGBTQ rights. Everywhere we turn, there's rights, rights, rights. In fact, an interesting discussion now is our transgender friends and in, in, in the world of sports. And I was watching Real Sports a couple years ago, and they profiled a, a man who transitioned into a woman who's fighting as an MMA fighter. And man, that was an interesting discussion about rights. Everywhere you turn, it's rights, 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 rights. 
And in the middle of all that, Jesus says, listen, I want you to lose your rights because I'm more, I'm more focused on the individual who's attacking you and I want to redeem their soul through your gospel response. And in order to do that, we've got to fly at a much higher altitude than law and rights. I need you to lose your rights. Let me give you two quick uh, illustrations and then a disclaimer and we can move on. So if I take you back to the 1960s, um, uh, let's talk for a minute about Malcolm X. Malcolm X, um, I think there's a lot of great things personally that uh, is very admirable about him. You, you talk about someone who wore, wore a prophetic mantle, who spoke truth to power, who called things out, who was very much um, driven to, to see a sense of dignity and justice um, for specifically African-Americans and towards the end of his life, all people. But if you look at Malcolm X, he was the poster child for rights. In fact, just down the road from where many of you live in Queens, his house was bombed one day, and, and there's this picture of him with the gun and him saying, by any means necessary. He preached regularly. Don't let anybody just put their hands on you. Someone strikes you, you strike them back. He would ridicule Dr. King and the civil rights movement, calling them soft and sellouts and, and Uncle Tom's. That was Malcolm X. He was all about rights. On the other side is Dr. King and John Lewis in the Civil Rights Movement. They were all about losing rights. The sit-ins, they sat in lunch counters in Nashville and Greensboro and across the South. And man, the pictures are horrific. People pouring hot cups of coffee on them, burning them with cigarettes and pouring milkshakes on them, pushing them, shoving them, slapping them, beating them. And not once are they retaliating. I could go to the streets and them being bitten by dogs and fire hydrants turned on them. And not once are they retaliating. Now, let me ask you a question. What transformed America? It wasn't the Malcolm X way. It wasn't rights. What transformed America was King's commitment to this passage. It was a willingness to lose their rights. Second illustration, let me just take it to your own house. Let's say there's a couple and he's just found out that she's cheated on him. Now, I want to be clear, the Bible gives you the right to divorce, gives you the absolute right. In fact, earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, whoever divorces his wife must first give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, commits adultery. So here's Jesus. He gives a loophole. He says, you have the right. They've cheated on you. You have that right. Now, let me, let me just ask you, what's a more powerful witness to our culture? She cheated on me. Done. Get out the house. Or I understand that marriage is an illustration of the gospel. Every day I cheat on God with my idols. And every day God welcomes me back. And in some way, shape, or form, I get to incarnate that in real time. And so I'm going to take you back. I, I, I want to stop here because this is important that I give you some tracks to run on. If I don't say this, you're going to leave this message feeling like I'm greenlighting abusive relationships. I'm not. Nor is Jesus. 
Listen to me. If you're in a situation where there's domestic violence, I want to plead with you, get out of there now, at least for a temporary separation, and this person needs to get the help that they need to get. Jesus isn't using this passage and telling you to hang in there in abusive relationships. Listen, if this person is just repeatedly cheating on you and cheating on you and, and there's no sense of repentance, that's a completely different story. In fact, we understand this from this passage. Look at the analogies. All of Jesus' analogies have limits. <laughs> I only have two cheeks. I only have one cloak. I'm only told to go one extra mile. And I only have so much money to give to the poor. I don't have an infinite amount of these things. There's, there's limits. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 18, look, as best as you can, be at peace with all people. Sometimes you do your best. Sometimes you do this. But there reaches a point where, okay, we've tried this on the job. The environment's just too toxic. I've hung in there for as long as I can. Now it's a question of my mental health. Okay. I, I got to shake the dust off my feet, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, and I've got to move on. But before we do that as a knee-jerk reaction, have we at least tried? To lose our rights. Secondly, though, Jesus says, I'm really interested in real quickly here in you reconciling, you winning your enemy. That happens by you not just losing your rights, but it also happens by you loving your enemy. Look at what Jesus says in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, if we just stop this message at lose your rights, we could make this a very passive thing. But Jesus moves from the passive lose your rights to the active. He says, I actually want you to love your enemy. I love what one scholar says about the word love. One scholar says that the word love means unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill. Unconquerable benevolence and invincible goodwill. It's this thing in which we just go, listen, the relationship may end, but my love for you is never going to end. I'm going to keep loving you and loving you and loving you. Brian, what does this look like? Jesus gives us one of the faces of love. He says, and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, I remember some years ago, just being, just being knifed in the back, just being gutted by this individual. And it... it it felt like someone had just punched me in my soul. I just, I felt winded, never saw it coming, almost like David with Ahithophel and Absalom. I just, man, it was hard. And I do these prayer walks in the morning, and, um, you know, I just sensed the Lord saying to me, I, I need you to pray for this person. And I'm like, I, I'm going to pray for them all right. And Jesus, I just felt, felt him saying to me, no, 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 I, I want you to pray prayers of blessings over this person. It's tough. It felt inauthentic. It felt awkward. I started praying the great prayer of blessing out of number 624 to 26 over this individual. I would say to this individual, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And I, I just spell that out. Lord God, prosper his business, prosper his finances, prosper his marriage, prosper his children, prosper his grandchildren. I mean, just going on the line. And, and here's what happened. It didn't happen overnight. I'd say it was a couple years of me praying this, to be honest. 
the bitterness and the unrighteous anger, it just slowly began to dissipate. And in its place was a, was a fondness and an affection where now the prayers felt authentic. And, and there was this thing in which I found myself really wanting these things to happen to this person. See, here's the deal. Someone wrongs me. It's almost like we, we go the mafia way, right? I'm talking to New Yorkers. You know, I know it's a caricature of New York, but the whole idea of the mafia way is, you know, you do something to me, you pull a knife out on me, I pull a gun out on you, you send one of mine to the hospital, I'll send one of yours to the morgue. Untouchables 1987, by the way, Sean Connery, Kevin Costner. If you haven't seen it, don't die and go to heaven until you do. Here's what I want you to understand. That kind of mafia way, it's in all of us. Some of us, it's a literal lashing out. Man, you say something to me, I'm going to speak to you in unredemptive tongues. I'm going to put some words together that's going to bless your soul. (laughs) Others of us, most of us, dare I say, we're way too cool for that. Way too cool for that. So the idea here is you do something to me and I now move passive aggressive. I I cut you off. I build a wall. I I just kind of stiff arm. I get busy all of a sudden. I don't return your phone call. I'm treating you as if you were dead. This isn't loving your enemy. Bishop Desmond Tutu's award-winning book, No Future Without Forgiveness, he just tells the story of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that they established in the nation of South Africa as she was just starting to emerge from decades of apartheid. And what's interesting, and many of us have heard these stories, what's interesting is is Tutu says what drove us to say we need to actually move towards our enemy and to win them is something called Ubuntu. Ubuntu. Ubuntu is a popular South African term. Um, It's hard to describe in America, but it's really this idea of, of we need each other. That, that my humanity, yeah, that's what Tutu says, my humanity is wrapped up, tied up, entangled up in you. That I can't be fully human without you, and you can't be fully human without me. So for me, when I'm wounded and offended, and I just treat you as dead, and I don't try to reconcile, there's no forgiveness, th- that hurts me. In fact, in one passage in this book, No Future Without Forgiveness, person is just talking about during apartheid, just getting beaten savagely by this individual. And this person is getting beaten and is thinking, man, this, this person is treating me like an animal. I need to love them and forgive them so that they get their humanity back. Can I ask you a question? Whose humanity do you need to give back? Who's the beast in your life that's been treating you like an animal that you need to give the kiss of forgiveness and reconciliation so that they're turned from a beast into a beauty. Jesus, and he's not recommending, in the Greek it's an imperative, it's a command. He's saying, love your enemies, command number two, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Let's go home on this. Why should I do this? Again, Brian, you don't, you don't really understand. You don't, you don't really understand my boss. You don't really understand my coworkers. You don't understand what that former friend did to me. You don't understand my ex. You don't understand, dare I even say, that child who's been poking me in the proverbial eye for years. If you, you don't understand. Why should I consider these things? Jesus tells us, 
He says in the middle of verse 45, For he, speaking of God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know what he's saying here? He's giving us the beautiful doctrine of common grace. He's saying, look, you wake up one morning, beautiful sunshine. That's not just for righteous people. Everybody enjoys that. The righteous and the unrighteous. People who watch MSNBC and people who watch Fox News. Uh, Obama, Trump, Democrats, Republicans, Yankees fans, Mets fans. Um, you know, people who live in Manhattan and even people who live on Staten Island. I mean, they all experience common grace. So why should I consider these things? Because if God makes the sun shine on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust, if there's no partiality there with God's love and grace, then neither should I have partiality. But this is a tough thing, right? Because when you've been hurt, there's something in us that, that automatically puts ourselves on the good guy or good girl part of the spectrum and then demonizes the other person. James Cone, who, who died uh, recently, um, in fact, he taught r right there um, in Manhattan at Union. James Cone is, is, is regarded as the father of uh, modern-day black liberation theology. If you, if you read his books, one of the things Cone is always saying is God is the God of the oppressed, the God of the oppressed, the God of the oppressed. In fact, critical race theory, which I think is incredibly nuanced, and there's sections of it that are really, really, really helpful, but, but there are some things about critical root, uh, um, um, race theory that, that's not congruent with the scriptures. This whole idea of ascribing virtue to people because they're simply oppressed and demonizing the oppressor and kind of having that binary, I mean, it might sound good, it might feel good, but it's at odds with what Jesus is saying right here in our text. See, here's what's hard for me to say as a black man. If I really understand the gospel, Jesus died for both the lynched and the lynch mob. Jesus died for Black Lives Matter and the Proud Boys. Jesus died and loves equally the cheater and the cheated on. This is, this is what it means. So if God doesn't have any special categories and his common grace is for everybody, then it's for us. That's why Jesus ends this very surprising section of scripture with an even more surprising statement. Look at how he ends. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What? Most of us look at the word perfect and naturally assume that Jesus is getting into moral purity, moral perfection. That's not what he's getting at. The Greek word for, per, uh, for perfect, it means to bring to completion, to experience one's desired end or purpose. In context, what he's saying here is, when you have someone wrong you, and they've knifed you, and they've wounded and winded you, and you respond by losing your rights and loving them and looking to God as your example, it's as if God slaps high five with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and says, that's exactly what I've called them to. That's exactly their purpose. That's exactly what I've created them for. When are we perfect? When are we living up to our purpose? It's when we're wronged and we refuse to go quid pro quo.
I had recently read uh, John Meacham's new biography on John Lewis, and I highly recommend it to you. Uh, breathtaking um, uh, piece on John Lewis. Uh, John Lewis, I actually think, is the most courageous person uh, in the civil rights movement. Dr. King gets a lot of credit, and for sure he was a man of courage, but man, John Lewis was just courageous. An example of that is John Lewis was, was a freedom writer. Right around the age of 20, 21, Lewis volunteered to hop on these buses that would go down to these hostile cities in the South and try to desegregate uh, these bus terminals. True story, 1961, John Lewis, 21 years of age, they pull up into Rock Hill, South Carolina, steps off the bus. There's an angry, angry mob that uh, ends up greeting them. One of the individuals is a guy by the name of Elwin Wilson, a white guy. And Elwin Wilson just recalls pummeling John and pummeling and beating him and beating him and beating him. And John Lewis, who subscribed to, to nonviolent uh, resistance, he didn't return. In fact, Lewis says, I actually remember saying to myself, it's not enough for me to not hate him. It's not enough for me to not strike him back. I actually need to love him as he's hitting me, losing his rights and loving well, John Lewis survives quite naturally. Life goes on for these two. And over, over the decades, uh, Elwin is just completely rocked. He cannot get this out of his mind. He ends up becoming, Elwin does, this white man who beat Lewis. He ends up becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. He turns to Christ. And then 48 years later, in 2009, he turns to John Lewis. And he asks for forgiveness and reconciliation, which John Lewis gives him freely. You should see a picture right now of the two of them together. It's amazing. John Lewis and Elwin, before they died, they would go on these speaking tours together. And it was breathtaking. You talk about an astounding picture. These two Jesus followers who were at odds are now bonded together. And John Meacham in his biography, he would say this of John Lewis, to meet John Lewis was to clearly see a man from another world whose kingdom was not of this world. Oh, I can think of an even better example. His name is Jesus Christ. You talk about a man from another world whose kingdom was not of this world. John says that Jesus Christ came from heaven, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. And ultimately, after 33 years, he would, he would be betrayed, taken into custody, he would be beaten and bruised and battered, beaten with a cat of nine tails, have his beard plucked out, spit upon, crown of thorns pushed down on his head, spear run through his side, jeered at, made fun. But at no point did he ever go quid pro quo, tit for tat. Jesus instead would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I am so thankful that in the land of America and all these rights, we have a relationship with God because Jesus refused to hold on to his rights. Oh, God, would you give us grace? Hard word. Show us how to flesh this out in our own context. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you, Church of the City. <laughs>